The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Here the Word of God is found in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 50, reading from the beginning of the chapter. This is what the Lord says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. There is a French philosopher who lived earlier in our century who said that the great problem with our secular world today is that it does not know the difference between a puzzle and a mystery. That the secularist is convinced, the scientific secularist particularly, that life doesn't have anything except puzzles. And if you will give the secularist and the scientist long enough, he can solve them all. But Gabriel Marcel said, no, life is not made up just of puzzles. It has many puzzles in it. But life also has mysteries in it. And those mysteries, science and the secularist, will never really solve. I was fascinated by that and particularly by the way he differentiated a puzzle. He said, you see, every puzzle in the beginning looks like a mystery. But once you've solved it, all of the mystery is gone. But a true mystery, once you've run it, you know that you have not found the key to what makes it go, and what there is in it that intrigues you. Once you've worked a puzzle a few times, you lose all interest in it. But when it comes to the mysteries of life, when you've worked them the thousandth time, they have as much allure and as much appeal as they did the first time you ever ran them. Now, uh, when I read that, I thought immediately of the uh, psychologists of religion in the early part of this century. One of the things that our century has forgotten is the character of life in the United States in the 19th century. Are you aware that the power of the gospel was so great in the United States between 1800 and 1860, 
that by 1860, one out of every three church members in the United States was a Methodist, so that the 19th century is called by many church historians the Methodist century. Now, I'm not as interested in the Methodist part as I am something else. You see, between 1800 and 1860, the major means for bringing a person into membership in the church, the Methodist church, was by religious conversion. So that by 1860, far more than one out of every three church members in the United States had experienced a genuine religious conversion. So that conversion was the order of the day for religious life in much of the 19th century. Now, when the discipline of psychology began to develop, the psychologists became very interested in that. And they learned that camp meetings and revivals and evangelistic campaigns had certain formulas they worked. And they said, if you get somebody to preach against sin long enough, people will get guilty. And if you let that guilt load on long enough, it'll become an unbearable burden. And then if you tell them that if they turn and believe certain religious things, then their guilt will be absolved. And they said, ah, we now know the secret, and conversion is not a mystery, it's a puzzle. And so then they tried to produce it. But the interesting thing is that uh, the psychologist could explain it, but could never produce it. And it was the fellow out there, like a Peter Cartwright or a Dwight L. Moody, who couldn't explain it, they were the ones that could produce it. Now, you know, there are a lot of mysteries in life. And I'm convinced that it should not be a surprise to us. Because, you see, we believe that there is a world beyond what the secularist and the scientist can see and touch and measure. We believe there's a world that you can't see that's more important than the world you can see and that the world you can't see is even more real than the world that you can see, and that it's the world that you can't see that determines how the world that you can see works. And so we're not surprised that if that world is infinite and this world is finite, then our finite categories don't exhaust all of reality. That's the thing that troubles me about the public schools handling all of the sex education in the United States. Because, you see, to the public schools, sex has to be simply biology, human biology. What you can touch, what you can measure, what you can feel, it has to be in the realm of the physical and the tangible. But do you remember the first time you kissed a girl you really loved? You remember the hundredth time you kissed her, if you really loved her? Are you going to tell me that that is all just simply puzzle? I've been married 40-some years. I'm glad that my relationship to Elsie, as much as it mystifies me, is in the realm of mystery, not puzzle. 
Because you see, if it's a puzzle, before it's over with, you control it. But the one thing I've found is that when it comes to mysteries, you never quite get in control. There is something elusive there that you can't handle and it escapes you until the end. Now, I think that is true of life. Because, you see, we live in a day when abortion is the rule so much of the time, and it's very easily justified because all we're dealing with is a cluster of little physical cells. But I remember the story of Paul Tournier, whose psychiatrist friend was counseling a girl about an abortion. And she kept insisting it was just a matter of a few physical cells, material cells. And all she wanted to do was rid her body of that little cluster of cells. And so suddenly the psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, had an inspiration, and he looked across and said, Have you given a name to this child yet? And he said, you know, I was shocked at the transformation in the atmosphere in the room. It was as if I were present at part of the creation. Because suddenly when we talked about a name, it was not a matter of a cluster of cells in her body to be expelled. It was a human person with an immortal soul. But you see, the secularist is dealing simply with puzzles. But we are those upon whom the light has shined, and we believe in mysteries, and we give thanks to God that He's built life that way, and that life is bigger than our understanding and our grasp of it all. Now, that's a long introduction and a particularly elaborate alibi because I want to speak this morning on something I spoke about two years ago. I debated that because uh, there's nothing that unnerves me more than to go somewhere to preach a sermon and be all ready and look down and on the front row there's somebody that heard me preach that sermon before. But there are some subjects that are not exhausted with one run. And I have found my own heart and my own mind coming back to this mystery again and again and again. And so I want to dare to take my courage in my hand and address the same subject today that I did one afternoon two years ago. It's a motif that is not developed extensively in Scripture on the surface. It is one that is given at least five times explicitly, but I believe that it is a biblical theme that, like some symphonic themes, there are moments when they come through very clearly, and there are other times when you get only haunting intimations of them. That theme is reflected in the passage that I read a few moments ago. God has a problem. He has a world that is lost, and he wants to save it. And he has a church that is backslidden and of little use to him. 
So God says, what can I do when my world is lost and my heart cries out to save it? And what can I do when my church, which is my instrument of redemption, is backslidden and has forsaken me? And so he says to the Hebrew, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother, Israel, the church, was sent away. When I came, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Did I lack the strength to rescue you? Now, there is the theme, the first time it is given explicitly that I can locate it in Scripture. When I came, why was there no one? Now, it was not there that I noticed it. It had to be much more explicit than that for me to catch it. But the explicit one came in uh, the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah where he begins with a passage that has some similarity to the language of the 50th chapter, when he says at the beginning of that chapter, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is my ear, God's ear, too heavy or too dull to hear. God begins by saying, There's nothing wrong with me. My arm has all the power it ever had, and my ear is as sensitive as it has ever been. I'm ready to hear your prayer, and I am ready to act. But the world is lost. And so we come to verse 16. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice in his world. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm worked salvation for him. It's an interesting concept to me that God can be astounded. After all, he's the one that knows all things. There is no question in our minds about his omniscience or his omnipotence. But the text says that God came and looked for one person, and when he couldn't find one single person that met his standards, he was astounded. And so he said, when I wanted to save, I couldn't save because I could not find one person. So then he said, my own arm had to act. Now, the other passages are in Isaiah 63. 1 through 5, Jeremiah 5, 1, and Ezekiel 22, 30. I suspect that you know the one in Ezekiel 22, 30 best. That's the one that is oftentimes used in our prayer meetings, where it tells how God looked for an intercessor, one who would make up the fence and stand in the way between God and a world that is lost. He looked for an intercessor. But all of these five passages go together. 
and they fascinate me with this kind of concept. The implication is very clear. In fact, I think it is more than an implication. The Sovereign Lord said, with a lost world, I could do something if I could find one single person. Do you really believe that in a world as big as ours and as lost as ours is and as complex and as technologically advanced as ours that you can make a difference? You know, I think one of the things that discourages people in our day is that all of the pioneering now has to be done by massive teams of people with incredible amounts, resources of money in order to do them. There was a day when Daniel Boone could just keep walking until he could break a new frontier, or Lewis and Clark or some of the others. There was a day when a Louis Pasteur in his own laboratory could break new ground scientifically. But you know enough to know that if problems like AIDS are to be tackled and handled, it is going to take massive amounts of money and stacks of scientists. If we want to push the geographical frontiers, the spatial ones, it's going to take thousands of engineers, many corporations, and multiplied billions of dollars, as we well know for us to simply push those frontiers. But if I read the Scripture correctly here, God says, I came down and looked through my world. And He says, if I could have found one person, I could have been in a different situation. Now, if that's true, if it was true then, and if it's still true now, I want to know the kind of person he's looking for who can make a difference for God in his world. Because that brings me to the second thing. If one person can make a difference, what he is really saying is that one single person can change God's circumstances. Isn't that interesting? You see, when I think about circumstances, I think about those things that stand around me, most of which I don't control. But do you know God has some things He doesn't control too? It may be your heart. Or it may be your neighbor's heart. I notice in that passage where He couldn't find a single person, He said, I don't have any trouble with the sea. I can divide it with a word. I can dry it up with a word. I can create the universes with a word. But how do I change one rebellious, sinful, unbelieving heart? And he said, that's what I'm interested in. All right, if I can find one person, he will make my circumstances different. In fact, Jeremiah 5.1 says, let me read that for you so that you get the actual language of it. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Now he's telling the prophet, search out the holy city. Notice that it is the holy city. You know how the Jews felt about Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the navel of the earth. 
They said, that's where heaven's umbilical cord hooks onto the earth. That is where the presence of God is found. In that holy city, go up and down through the streets, look around and consider, search out her squares. If you can find but one person, I will forgive that city. Isn't it interesting that that whole city could have been forgiven if the Lord could have found the right person? Now, that has intrigued me, and I've lived with it for two or three years, saying, God, what kind of person is it that you want that will make a difference? When I got those passages together and began studying them together, I noticed something. I noticed that God uses in His inspired Word, and I believe the text of this book is inspired, He uses two Hebrew words that have begun to give me a clue. One of them is in that Isaiah 59:16. He said, I looked, and some of the translations used the word intercessor, or one to intervene. The Hebrew, and as you know, I'm an old Hebrew teacher, so you'll pardon me for a moment. The Hebrew word there is a participle, which means it's speaking about a person who does something. And that participle is from a Hebrew verb, which means to take two things that are separated and bring them together. The word actually means to meet, essential meaning to meet. The form is a causative form. And so it says, I looked for one who would cause to meet. And I said, ah, God is looking for somebody who can take God in his holiness and a world in its sin and bring them together. And he says, where can I find somebody like that? He said, I looked and I could not find one. So he said, mine own arm brought me salvation. I want to tell you about my thinking. You see, when I see the word, the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord, my tendency is to say, ah, that's the brute power of God. You know, the kind where you can sit on his throne and zap him. Sit on his throne and say, I want that different, and bang, it takes place. After all, he's the sovereign Lord. He is ultimate authority and power itself. But then I noticed, he said, I looked for an intercessor, couldn't find him, and so mine own arm brought me salvation. Now that's in Isaiah. Isaiah 50 refers again to that arm. Isaiah 63 refers again to that arm of the Lord. But do you know there's another passage that speaks about the arm of the Lord? Do you remember the way Isaiah 53 begins? Isaiah 53 begins with these words. Who has believed our report? Who can believe what we've got to say? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And do you know what comes next? He says, you can't believe our report. The arm of the Lord has been made known. And then we get Isaiah 53, which is the greatest description in the Scriptures of Jesus 
in His suffering role to redeem us. So if I'm to take Isaiah 53 as a picture of the arm of the Lord, do you know what that means? That means that God said, when I couldn't find a human person, I became one. And isn't that interesting? Now, we don't have time to develop that. The clock's run too fast. But let me jump away down the line on the logic of that. Why under the sun did God need to become one to save the likes of you and me? Do you know what I'm willing to say? Now, I'm aware that I can skirt some heresy here very easily, so you be patient with me. But if I read that correctly, God said salvation couldn't start from heaven. It had to come from down here. And the only way I could get it started down here was to become one of you. And so we get the story of Bethlehem's manger. And when he came, he was so much like one of us that we didn't know who he was. We thought he was just one of us. Now, that's beautiful to me, but it says something very seriously about the way God is going to have to save the world. It's not going to be this way. He comes from above, but the saving work is done this way through a human being. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And so he looked for a person. Now, I noticed something in Isaiah 53 that I had never seen before. Isaiah 53 takes that Hebrew root, which is used in 59, about the intercessor, the one who causes to meet, and it is used in a very special way in the sixth verse of Isaiah 53. You're familiar with the King James of it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And you know the rest, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. But do you know what the Hebrew says? The Hebrew says it's the word hifgiah from the same root as that mafgiah in 59 for the intercessor. And the literal translation is, he has caused to meet in himself the iniquities of us all. Now, I wish we had time to elaborate that, but we don't. But do you know what it says to me? If what redeems me is when he calls to meet in himself the iniquities of us all, Salvation for me began when there was somebody at my level who cared more about me than I cared. And when there was somebody at my level that cared more about me than he did himself and his own well-being. And do you know what I've come to believe? I have come to believe that there is no way that anybody is ever saved 
until there's somebody that cares more about the other person than he does himself. Now that fits with uh, another Old Testament theme, our understanding, way of conceiving. You see, the strongest word in the Old Testament for to forgive is a word which means to bear. Hebrew word nasah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, because God placed our lostness upon him, and he bore our transgression. It's interesting, it's the bearing by him of my sins that made it possible for me to get free from my sins. And if he had never borne my lostness, there would have been no hope for me. So he says, I looked for one like that, and I could not find one, so I had to become one. And when I became one, that stream of redemption started. Now that brings me to something that uh, I'm convinced he's still looking for people. Because do you know what I notice? I notice that the church of God never advances until he gets somebody that bears somebody else. Do you know that today they say there are better than 20,000 conversions a day in black Africa? Do you know where I think that started? Now, I'm sure it's not all there, but much of it. In the heart of a little Scottish lad whom we know by the name of David Livingston. And God said, there's a whole continent. I died for that whole continent. Nobody cares about that continent. Will you care? And David Livingston began to pray for that continent and to care. And out of that caring, today we see the explosion of Christianity across black Africa. But he spent his life bearing China before God. And God ultimately opened the door. And it may be that the greatest explosion of the Christian church in the history of the world has been in the last 35 years in communist China. How'd you find Christ? It wasn't an accident. <laughs> I don't think there's any question in the world but that my salvation started in the heart of my mother. Now, I know my dad cared about me, but my mother bore me. I could talk a long time about that. Now, God didn't use my mother to win me. He used Mother Clark down here. But what I noticed was that when I bumped into Mother Clark, I bumped into a woman who bore in her heart teenagers. And she gave her life for teenagers. For the Buddy Luces and the Joe Luces and the George Luces and the Dennis Kenlaws and 
some of the rest of the people that are around here. And when she saw me sitting in her class in due time, she got me aside. She said, here's another one. Didn't even know about him. But now I know his name and I know his face. And she looked at me and said, wouldn't you like to be a Christian? But you see, she bore teenagers in her heart. Now, uh, I'm convinced that it's that heart-bearing that makes possible anybody's salvation. I don't think the redemption of Africa started with the lips and the tongue and the feet of David Livingston. I think it started when he gave his heart to carry Africa for God. Now, does that mean that there's anything saving in us? I don't believe that for a minute. You and I are flesh, and we're creatures. And if there is anything redemptive, it is in God and in God alone. He is the Savior. But you see, I think the way he works is, he said, I can't do it this way. I've got to do it this way. And if I do it this way, I can't be reincarnated every generation and in every culture. So he said, I did it once in my son. And now I'll give my son to those who believe in him. And I'll let them bear my burden with me. Do you remember that day in Amy Carmichael's life when she was ready to give up and quit? She said, I've angered the Hindus. I've angered the British economic interests. I've angered the whole missionary community. They're all telling me I'm rocking the boat and I ought to quit. And she said, I've got opposition on every hand. She knelt by her bed and wept and said, God, it's not my problem. And she said, he looked at me and said, that's right. It's not your problem, it's mine. I'm just looking, 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 looking for somebody who will bear it with me. Amy Carmichael said, I had no option. I went back and picked up the cross. Now, do you know that's the reason that I believe the message of holiness is so important? Because do you know what I think is the essence of it and the final test of it? The essence of the experience of heart holiness is deliverance from self-interest. We used to call it the carnal mind. But we've got new translations now and we've wearied of the old language. So we don't use that language anymore, but the reality hasn't changed. Our primary interest is in ourselves. And you see, if the only way you will ever have a chance to be freed from your sins is for me to get more interested in you 
than I am in Dennis Kinlaw. There is no hope for you until my heart is cleansed from that self-interest. And when that comes, do you know there always does develop that interest in the other person? I read again this year John Wesley's testimony to his own conversion. Whenever God touches the heart and begins to set us free, the proof is not that now we're saved. The proof is that we get concerned about others. Wesley said, you remember you rose that morning and read the text in the Gospels, Thou art not far from the kingdom. And he said, Oh, that that might be true of me. And that that might be true today. That afternoon he went to St. Paul's in London. And the anthem that afternoon was out of the depths of I cried unto thee, O God. Lord, hear my prayer. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities... Who shall stand, but there is forgiveness with thee? And he said, oh, that I might find it today. All this way. That night he sat in an independent church and listened to the reading of Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Two sentences. I always notice the first and never notice the second. To my loss. And I felt my heart strangely warmed and felt that God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me my sins, even mine, and that I had been delivered from the law of sin and death. Do you notice the preoccupation with Himself? And I felt that God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me my sins, even mine, and delivered me from the law of sin and death. But do you know what the proof of the pudding is? It's the next verse. And I immediately began to most earnestly pray for those who had most despitefully used me. When the grace came, the arms went out. And that is God's way of reaching our world. Now, why is it that our world has not been reached? It's because we're still taking care of ourselves. I'd like to ask you this morning, what's your burden? And whom are you bearing? You see, I've come to believe that the proof of being in relationship with Jesus, who cared more about me than he did himself, is that I should care more about somebody else than I do myself. And he has somebody for me to bear. Part of that's my family. Thank God for the messages that Tom has given us in these first two days of the camp. That's right and proper. But you know, there's still a bit of self-interest there. I'd like to know who it is beyond your family that you bear. 
and that their well-being is more important to you than your well-being. I notice that's the way the Christians in the book of Acts live. They counted not their lives dear unto themselves. And so they were expendable. I remember that Jesus said on that resurrection Sunday evening, He showed them His hands and His side and said, As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. That's interesting. I think I understand some biblical text that I never understood before. You see, I never knew what to do with that passage where it says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. And I thought, can't mean what it says. But do you know what that is? It's a Semitic way of saying that the potential for salvation for somebody else rests in you. And if they are to be delivered, it will depend upon you. So I've come to believe that nobody's salvation ever starts in himself. Everybody's salvation starts in somebody else. And so if a world is to be reached, We have to be delivered from ourselves. And so we need that divine fire from the Holy Spirit to purge our hearts of our own self-centeredness, our own carnal self-interestedness, so that we can be released to be what Christ wants us to be. And when that happens, it's incredible the load that he puts upon us. You know, I was in my mid-sixties, before I was willing to look at these verses. Do you remember where Jesus said, I and my Father are one. If you accept me, you get my Father. And if you reject me, you miss my Father. What you do with me determines your relationship to Him. Now, I could buy that. It's the next step I had trouble facing. Do you know what he said? He said, now, Dennis, I send you. And if they accept you, they get me. And if they get me, they get my father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my father. Now, that's not talking about my worth. That's talking about the way God works. That's talking about the way God works. And do you know what I found? The beautiful thing is, the same way everybody's salvation rests in somebody else, everybody's fulfillment rests in somebody else. Because do you know what will happen? If the grace of God ever totally captures your heart, do you know what will be your greatest joy? 
It will be somebody else's redemption. Somebody else's deliverance. Do you remember what Paul said to the Galatians? My little children for whom I travail in birth like a woman in labor so that Christ may be formed in you. And he wrote to the Romans, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ if only you could know him. For me to live is Christ, and if you live, I live, and if you die, my life is unfulfilled. That's the reason I think I can say Indian Springs is so important to me. And the holiness message is so important. Because you see, the work of God, the redemption of His world, hangs on whether you and I can come to the place where we're free from the bonds that bind us to ourselves until we can pour out our lives for others. And do you know, if we let Him do that within us, this campground would become a center from which streams of living water would flow in far greater portion and far greater power to the world about us. I'd like to ask you today, whom do you bear? I'd like to ask you if you've let him cleanse your heart enough that he can make you fruitful the way he wants you to be fruitful. Shall we bow our heads together? Our Father, it's a Saturday noon. We go in a few moments to eat. But we won't get this moment again. And you are here. You are here in your Holy Spirit. You've given us an example in Christ. There's something within every one of our hearts that wants to follow Him. There's some of us, Lord, that have followed only partially. And our hearts have yearned for more. We'd like to see you make today, this noon hour, an hour when some of us are delivered so that we can be instruments of redemption in a world of great need. You gave for us, O Christ. You cared more for us than you did for yourself. Start that kind of love within us today. And we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We use the language so easily about giving our hearts to Jesus. Do you know I think it takes the cleansing, filling power of the Holy Spirit to really give your heart to Him? Because you see, your heart is where your loves are. And if you give Him your heart, You'll love the ones He wants you to love. You'll give yourself for the ones He wants you to give yourself for. Have you given Him your heart? Sometimes we say, I gave Him my heart when I was ten years of age. What we mean is, we let Him forgive our sins. 
I want to know if you've given him your heart to love what he wants you to love, to care for what he wants you to care for, and to bear, to carry what he wants you to carry. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at TitusWomen.org.